I'm your host, Adam P. Kennedy. Welcome to America's Place in the World, featuring retired four-star United States Marine Corps General and former U.S. Special Envoy to Israel and the Palestinian Authority, Tony Zinni. We're looking at the world and America's place in it. In this episode, we're discussing the role of education. It's coming up right now. Well, I know that's one of your great mantras is education, education, education. And I'm curious, do you think once we're sort of out of this situation here in this country in terms of rethinking education in America, is there, you know, how to improve education? Do you see that could be something that could uh, come out of this? You know, there's a fundamental thing that has to occur. And that has to be how we view education. Is education a right, a privilege? What do we as a society and the mechanisms we have to provide education, how should we view that? I think we should view it as an investment. The investment into the future of our people, our citizens, our youth, is in getting them educated as much as possible. You know, The more educated you are, the less you are in danger of somebody else challenging you because you will be superior in whatever it takes to defend yourself, whether it's technology or diplomacy or whatever it is. And the more educated you are, the more advanced your society is going to be and less susceptible to the problems that ignorance and uh, lack of education create. And it assures your future. It assures things like your well-being, your health care, and everything else because you're working at the state of the art with those kinds of things. So if you view it as an investment, you know, like we view our military, we tell ourselves we need a strong, robust, globally capable military to sustain and protect our lifestyle. Well, we should have the same view to education. Then you're willing to fund it and provide for it and to protect it and to ensure it. When it's not accessible, when government doesn't do everything to provide it, it's akin to saying we're not going to have a military. We're, you know, we're going to see the military as something that you know you bare essentials. We're not going to to look to be to have a dominant military that ensures our survival and protection and way of life. I think until you change that attitude running around saying we're going to put more into it, we're going to help with tuitions, we're going to do all this other stuff. It has to be a fundamental shift in the way we view education. Well, then on a side note, do you see any of our leaders who who want to take that type of approach? I think a lot of leaders pay lip service to it. It's kind of like the environment. It's hard to see the the degradation because it doesn't hit home. It doesn't mean much to you that, uh, you know, an ice cap is melting or polar bears are going away or the sea rise in, the, in Kiribati is, is causing uh, the islands to go away. Not understanding that that's all going to wash up on your shores at some point. You know, the rainforests are being burned down and not having a robust education system and all the problems it creates, just like the one we started this discussion with, was people that are uninformed and ignorant and and the problems that creates, you're not going to really realize it until it hits home, until you, you know, something negative is generated by that ignorance, you know, and it feeds into things like racism, it feeds into things like generating greater class distinctions and, and poverty.
property and the implications and you know until it blows up in your face you you know you you don't appreciate it it's the death of a thousand cuts and you don't realize it until you're dead we'd started talking about again the role of the US military and I'm curious in terms of education do you think the uh, the US military does a good job in terms of educating its uh, people I think it's done a much better job since the transformation of our military after Vietnam. We put a great deal more value on both education professionally, the military as a profession, and external education. It goes toward your ability to to get promoted, to succeed in your profession. If you demonstrate a desire and a need and an opportunity to get an education, one of the greatest things that came out of World War II was the GI Bill. And in effect, the GI Bill allowed us to create a much more greater uh, educated population, which allowed us to prosper during the Industrial Revolution in this country and the post-war development. We took all those young men, and, and in some cases women back then, uh, more so now, and we not only valued education in the military, and later after Vietnam developed the professional military education system, we have, we put value on them seeking education and then gave them the means with the GI Bill. So the military does, I think, now value that. It's not a cannon fodder military, and it hasn't been. And I think every, ever since the 1980s, there's been an increasingly more emphasis on education in the military both within it and outside of it, to, so that you bring in the benefits of education and to give people the means to do it. Do you think that there's something that mainstream America could learn from the military in terms of education? Yeah, we should reward education. I, you know, I love these ads on TV by some of these uh, online universities, community colleges and all. I mean, we never had those in the kinds of numbers we have now. But access to education is greater. There's still issues about affordability and how that needs to work. But you're creating a, a culture now. You just look on it where you see the advertisement shows some young person that wants to better themselves and so begins taking courses and and that sort of thing. So I think there's there's been a gradual rise in appreciation for it and the importance of it. But I think it uh, needs a lot more emphasis and, like I said, needs to have a fundamental Relook at how we view education. Mm -hmm. If you had to rate the difference between being in a classroom with a professor versus an online education, how would you rate the two, sir? Well, I think there's, in some ways, they're apples and oranges. In okay. some ways, and I've I've had both. Currently, now I'm finishing up my doctorate, and it's basically been online. I did a. Uh, one of my three masters was a hybrid, part residence, part online. The other two masters were residence, as was my bachelor's. And so I see benefits from either side. You know, doing it at your own pace, in your own house, on your own time, has a lot of advantages, especially if you've got other things going on in your life. It allows you to engage when, you know, you feel you're the most productive the whole idea of the classroom with somebody standing up there in charge and directing and 
and uh, lecturing uh, or whatever the means used isn't necessarily the best form of education. Not all people learn best from that. I think technology now has given us a much greater opportunity to be educated through many different means and in many different places at many different times. There is an advantage to coming together and being in a body where you can share ideas, where you can socially interact. I think there's value in that in an academic setting. If you ask me about the best form, I would say it would be a hybrid, a combination of the two, which would, would be the most effective. We have seen now uh, many of the uh, of the college courses where students take a year off and go out and into the world somewhere to see, touch, feel whatever, whatever their their discipline is and learn about it to have experiences outside the classroom. So, I mean, I, I think uh, education is going to escape from totally being bound into the classroom. It's happening now. And so the best that you can get out of each of these forms would be the ideal. I know, you know every year there's rankings about the education levels of children around the world. In your mind, do you see any countries who are really doing a phenomenal job in terms of educating? I think that our university system in the U.S. is still the best. That's not to say there aren't others that do well and come up pretty close. But I think basically and across the board, we have the best university system. I do worry about our secondary education. I do worry about our high schools and our middle schools. I think we're losing something there, losing a great deal of traction there. And that's where I would focus more of our attention because that's where you create the thirst for education. That's where you create the appreciation for education. That's where you form in, in young people's mind the value of the education going forward and to pick and choose what they might initially follow. I, I think that uh, we could do much better at that level, especially in some parts of our education system, like inner city schools and other places where it's maybe dreadful, the conditions that, that they that teachers and students have to work under. Yes. Well, I'm curious, you talked about universities, but in, in talking about a hybrid, could you ever envision at the elementary, middle school, and high school levels that uh, there could be a hybrid? Yeah, and I, and I think one thing you could do is go to year-round school, which doesn't mean you ha you don't have blocks that you're off. What we do is we educate for several months, then we shut down the entire education, and kids go off and you know have to come back and get readjusted and reoriented. More and more, I see uh, students taking courses over the summer or getting involved in things that are more educational. So, you know, a lot of that could be blended in a way where you know, there, there's uh, online education, that sort of thing that's going on 365 days. I mean, not every day. I mean, you certainly would have time off and that sort of thing, but, hmm. you know, would provide that flexibility. So you had talked about the, the inner cities and obviously in many cases, the deplorable situations that are there is, is the only way to resolve that is what you just talked about earlier is about this idea of investing. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, that's the most important place to invest. You don't want, we don't want a whole large segment of our society that fails in the middle of a dreadful education system and then struggles for the rest of their lives trying to find a place that they've never been able to develop their own skills to, to meet in society. 
I like to see education as a right, you know, and we do everything to provide and for that right to be fulfilled. And like I said, we're not trying to create all, you know, doctorates in physics. Education goes into training and and uh, preparation for, uh, you know, even the things that uh, we need, the professions that can, that obviously people can do well in and enjoy and, uh, you know, find uh, interest in. It isn't all about STEM. <laughs> Right. How much of all that is also involved in, uh, or revolves around race, do you think, sir? Oh, I think a large amount of it. It's just like, uh, what we talked about in terms of this, uh, this pandemic. It's hit harder on, uh, a group of people that have had less opportunity because of racism or because of the traps that race and ethnicity and other things put them in, in terms of, uh, you know, class structure and, and all. So the only way you're going to get equality is to make sure there's equality in opportunity, equality in education, equality in, in the ability to, to have a voice in government. And so it, it goes across the board. You can't have part of our society that's seen as unequal because you've lost the productivity from that. It, first of all, it's wrong. But secondly, you've lost the productivity. It's, it's just like the role of women that is starting to come into its own now more than ever. 50% of our population, we were not drawing the productivity and the promise and everything that they could provide because they were denied that sort of opportunity, that sort of equality. And the same thing could be said for because of their status, because of their race, color, creed, ethnicity, whatever, uh, you know, aren't given those same opportunities. My oldest son just got accepted into NYU, the master's program, and total cost with room and board and everything is like $140,000. And, you know, we're, you know, obviously I'm very proud that he was accepted, but that. <laughs> <laughs> he went to the bank, right? <laughs> so I'm curious, do you think for young people in terms of debt, student debt, What's the threshold? I mean, is it uh, is it a good idea for a young person to take out a hundred thousand dollars in loans to get a degree? Do you think? Well, obviously not. I mean, <laughs> I, uh, I I think uh, having uh, uh, tremendous debt and starting your life out is uh, very difficult to manage and and sets people behind before they even get a chance to establish themselves, you know, and maybe begin a family and all sorts of things that are affected by that. How do we uh, deal with that? Well, we've had, obviously, candidates that say, well, the government's going to take it all. Yeah, everybody gets free tuition along with everybody else. Well, maybe that's not affordable. Is there a way the debt can be low interest stretched out longer? Is there a way that there could be other ways that the uh, that student pays back that loan through community work and other things that that person might do after school that can be counted as credit toward that and benefits the society as a whole and obviously uh, has an impact on drawing less on taxes because of the work they do. So I think we have to be more imaginative about this. Yeah, well, certainly from a uh, parent's perspective, yeah, I, I agree. Uh. I mean, if you, if you, if you are going to if you're going to need $100,000 to complete your, your degree, then I think you could say, well, look, it could be a combination of loans, low interest spread out, and a combination of community service credits that would reduce that. 
let's say you went into the military for three years, you would incur X number of credits toward your tuition if you went into the Peace Corps, if you interned some places, if you did volunteer work that was listed as a, a credit eligible. I mean, I think there are a lot of ways this, this can work to encourage people to do it and not put a burden on them that's unbearable. Do you think in terms of when you look at our our quote-unquote best universities, do you think there really is a huge disparity, or is there a huge disparity between the Harvards and the Stanfords and the University of Chicago's versus um, more middle-of-the-road schools or even community colleges? I mean, is there what kind of disparity do you think there is, sir, in terms of the quality I don't of think education? There's a disparity in the long run. You know, I mean, here's my experience. I've had experience in the academic world, in the corporate world, in the military world, diplomatic and world. So I see a, a four-star general. I see a CEO of a major company. Well, they don't all have Harvard degrees, you know. Some of them went to Stony Brook, you know, or someplace like that. Uh, the education, yeah, I, I don't get hung up on where you got your education. That may mean a lot for your first job. But after a while, you're going to prove yourself through uh, through what you contribute and what you do. I mean, hopefully we have a meritocracy here. But, you know, I, there was a study done by a, a professor that headed up the MBA program at Stanford, and he followed his students to see who were the most successful. He found no correlation with the grade point average with those that uh, – reach the top, you know, so, you know, even though they might have had started out in an exceptional academic institution, their successfulness measured in grade point average wasn't necessarily that high. You know, there were two four-star generals in my class of second lieutenants, and neither one of us went to uh, a Harvard or a, a military academy or anything like that. So the education and where you get it, it, that doesn't mean as much as, as getting it. And I think you could find somebody come out of a small college that learned more, received more benefit personally because they invested more in the education that somebody might have gone to a Harvard or Stanford that just went there to get the uh, get the degree with that name on it. That might help them, like I said, for their first job. But after that, you pretty much are in a system where you got to earn it. <laughs> that begs the question then, are those schools sort of pulling the uh, wool over our eyes? I mean, is it sort of a <laughs> smoke and magic show that uh, that they're putting together? Because well, there's, there's obviously such a huge emphasis on those institutions. Well, here's what I would say to you. Just take, just take the presidents since, uh, let's say, World War II. Let's say from Franklin Delano Roosevelt to now. And do a little homework. See where they got their degrees. Mm -hmm. Now, they became presidents of the United States. You know, what did it mean? Go to the Fortune 500 companies and look at the C-suites, the CEOs, COOs, and all. See where their degrees came from. During the McNamara era, we had the whiz kids, all the Harvard graduates that were going to analyze uh, the Defense Department to death, and we were going to win wars on analytics. <laughs> they bombed terribly, you know. Yes. You know, LBJ, who went to a small school in Texas, did more 
in terms of legislation than the Harvard boys did that preceded them, you know, and were in the government. I'm not that hung up, and maybe others are, on the institution. I don't think we want diploma mills out there, but that's not what I'm talking about. But I think there are a lot of fine universities and colleges that that are maybe far more affordable, that provide you with more than a sufficient education and give you a great base to develop from. What's the argument then that maybe the professors at these elite schools are better? Do you? Well, you know, I think we need a, and, and I hate to say this because it, it probably get a lot of blowback, but I think we need to look at that whole system, you know. How much work do they do or do these training assistants provide to TAs? You know, how many papers do they grade? Are they more involved in their own publishing and development? How many of them are on tenure and have, you know, ceased to produce? If I go into a small college and I find a hungry, dedicated professor and he or she is really invested in his students, I think I can get as much as someone who's uh, now laid back and, uh, you know, counting the uh, royalties from their books and, uh, having some uh, graduate student that's a TA grade their papers. Yeah. Well, no, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good, that's a good point. Yeah. Well, it's just, it's just fascinating. Our take on those elite schools and, um, you know, my mother taught at Harvard for a number of years and, you know, and, and at Berkeley and at Stanford and, and so on. But, uh, yeah, I think, you know, certainly the, I think you're right in terms of, you know, how hungry you are. And if, if you're a student or a teacher, professor, um, if you're hungry, then th- those are the kind of people you want to be around, right? Well, and if they're dedicated, if they see their role as, you know, defined by what they impart. Look, we have all been to schools where you just connect to some teachers better than others. You just feel that teacher has your best interests at heart more than others, where you feel that teacher understands or knows more than the others and imparts that understanding and that that knowledge in a most effective way. I don't think it is the basis is on where you go. I've had chairs at Cornell and uh, Berkeley and, uh, and Duke and, and other places, and I've had them in small schools, too. I looked at the faculties and around the faculties, and, you know, you have that, that teacher that is the Pied Piper that everybody gathers around and wants to be with, and he invests his time behind what's just in the classroom and uh, and connecting to his students. And the real measure is, uh, after those students graduate, how much they still stay connected to those professors and how much those professors remain engaged with their former students. Uh, To me, that's a real mark of the effect of of a teacher-scholar relationship. Yes. You had talked about, you have, what, three masters, you're working on your PhD. In terms working of... Working on my dissertation, yeah, coming yeah, right yeah, down to the end. Yeah. <laughs> very exciting, very exciting. <laughs> uh, do you, in terms of how you would rate those different experiences, were they, especially with the masters, would you grade it all sort of the same in terms of your experience, or was one different than the other? Uh, each of them was different were different and uh, each was different and uh, you know they they were obviously such a variety of, of disciplines so it would be like comparing an apple or an orange and it were different times in my life too okay so but uh, and they were different methodologies 
you know, uh, like I said, one was a resident, one residency, one was a hybrid resident online, and the other was, you know, pretty much online. Uh, so, you know, it the the forms were different, the disciplines were different, the institutions were different. I enjoyed them all uh, very much. One final question. In terms of the role of the Department of Education, or its its past role, what role should that have? I think, you know, it should be a standard setter. Uh, it should be a force for ensuring equality throughout the education system throughout the country. It should be a force for standards for our teachers out there and their level of competence and also their livelihood and their everything from their pay to their benefits. I mean, we do a horrible job in terms of uh, the image of our teachers. To me, they should be revered and regarded very highly and rewarded very highly. We don't, we don't do enough for our teachers, and they have to be dedicated. You'd like to see people that maybe would have gone that course but can't because of you know, financial reasons and others have to choose another profession and we lose talent. So I think that's another role they can play. The quality of our institutions, uh, monitoring our institutions. I think looking at institutions that, uh, you know, build prestige through uh, inflated reputations or uh, the fortunate situation of having uh, high endowments and so jack up their their tuitions just because they can (laughs) and help the institutions that provide quality graduates but need more help because they don't have uh, an elite alumni. You know, so I think there's a number of roles they can play. And like we said before, focusing on inner cities and places where our education system is left money, what we need to do to bolster those up. What's your current take on the current secretary, uh, Betsy DeVos? Well, she's very controversial. I haven't followed it that much, but, you know, obviously I think... uh, there's been a lot of controversy about how she's approached the role, but that's that's true, been true of the last several uh, secretaries of education. You know, <laughs> you know, it, it, like I said, I went back and said, how you view education? I mean, the Department of Education, although it's a cabinet position, does it have the same prestige as Department of Defense or Department of State or you know Homeland Security? Because it should have. Like I said, it's an investment in your future, you know, in your children and your children's children. Budgets probably uh, <laughs> reflect the, the differences in the way we view it, too. Thank you for joining us. Find us on Facebook at General Zinni APW and online at apkcg.com forward slash APW. I'm Adam P. Kennedy, and this is America's Place in the World.